Good morning and welcome again to Park Church. We're glad, we're glad that you're here. We're in the second week of our new uh, spring series called You Do Who You Are. The idea behind this series is that we are what God has made us. And so all God wants from us is to be who he has made us, to just do who you are. Uh, last week, we kicked off the series by uh, kind of making it as simple as possible. God made you. So live like it. That was sort of what we talked about last week. God made you, so live like it. And we said that God made us particular things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to choose four of these main images from uh, the New Testament where uh, all, of, all of what God has made us is kind of summed up in these four things. Things like missionaries, things like servants, things like families, brothers and sisters. Um, this morning we're focusing on this. God made you his children, so live like it. This series, when it comes down to it, what it's about is about identity. It's about who we are. It's about um, how God has made us. And identity is one of those things that I think as humans, as people, we talk around a lot and we make a lot of our decisions and kind of like our actions and our attitudes and kind of what we do, what drives us in life is based on this identity, um, but we don't really talk about it super directly. But what we do, we want what we do to make us who we are and things like that. And we make decisions in order to make it reflect well on us. And so we kind of circle around identity all the time. I had a conversation with a friend a few weeks ago that really kind of brought this up for me. Um, we were talking, you know, kind of about all kinds of things. We were kind of catching up in life. This is a guy who I really look up to in faith. He's a Christian guy um, I look up to. And we were having a conversation where I thought we were talking about one thing, which we were, but then... Uh, <laughs> But later I reflected on it, and it was like, oh, what we were talking about really was identity. What he was talking about was who he is, and how he conceives of himself, and how he pictures and wants the world to picture himself. And here's the basics of the conversation. Um, careful, if you ever talk to me, you might end up up here in this uh, situation. Uh, <laughs> so we were talking, we were catching up, and he was saying that one of his daughters is um, about to go to college in a, in a year or two, and she's looking at what schools to go to. She's super smart, super capable. She's going to do fine wherever she goes. And I asked him, you know, where is she thinking of going? And he told me, and I asked him, uh, but where do you want her to go? Like, where do you think is the best place for her? And he said to me, to be honest, it doesn't really matter. Uh, she's super smart. She's going to get a great education wherever she chooses. Um, she'll get the degree that will, uh, that will allow her to get the job. Like, her future is not going to be contingent upon the quality of her, like, education, per se. What's really important, what really matters for her is that she has a good experience. All I want is for her to go to college um, and to really grow into the person who God means for her to be. I want her to grow... Um, and to the person who has friends and who's comfortable with herself. It's a good place for her. It's a good um, place for her to learn and to learn how to learn. That's what, I, that's what I want. That's what I want for my daughter. I thought to myself, wow, that's really great. I hope someday I can do that for my kid because that's like a great way to view parenting. And then he said to me, uh, but, <laughs> dude, let me tell you, the school that she's looking at is number like 33 on the list. And I look at that 33, and I know that she got into number three. And for some reason, there's something, inside, there's something pulling inside of me that wants to push her up from number 33 to number three. Even though 
I know the difference in education is not going to actually mean anything. It's not going to change her life. It's not going to make her better. It's not going to give her a better job. It's just a difference. It's just prestige. I know 33 is the better place for her to be than three. And I know it's true in my head. And I can say it to you now. But maybe you'll experience this when your kids get old enough. There's something inside of me that wants to push her to move from 33 to three, even though it's bad for her. And even though I know it's bad for her. And I said, why, why is that? And he said to me, um, I don't really know. I think, I think in some capacity, I think that where she goes to college is going to reflect on me and make me seem like a success. It's going to validate my life, my parenting. Um, it's something like I'm writing the story of my life, and the better college she goes, the better my story looks. I thought, wow, you're really messed up. <laughs> No, I thought to myself, well, yeah, of course, I know what you're talking about, because I do that all the time, and we all do that all the time. There are things that we know aren't going to be the things that are going to make or break our lives. They're not going to be the things that really matter. When we go out in the world, we're looking for validation. We're looking for self-esteem. We're looking for worth. We're looking to be loved, and we put ourselves into these things that we know aren't going to actually deliver the way that we want them to deliver, but we do them anyway. And I think we all do. I know I do. I mean, I have, I have this thing about me, and if you know me well, you know this. Um, when I want to do something, and when I really care about something, I, I have this image of what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to do that I can just never actually reach. There's something inside of me that says the thing that I care about, I am by definition not good enough to achieve that thing. And the problem is the thing that I want that's what I want people to see. That's how I want to be judged by other people. That's how I want those few people whose opinions really matter to me, that's what I want them to see. And because I can, by definition, never live up to that thing, I never feel like I'm good enough. And the thing is, I know this is a house of cards that is, of course, never going to last. And it falls down. And it's a complete waste of time, to be honest. And it's why I work so hard. It's why I drive so hard. It's why I strive for these things, and I know it's not going to actually deliver what it promises to deliver, and I know it can't deliver that, but I do it anyway. Why? We all do this. When we look for um, validation in the eyes of those around us because of how successful we are, this is the kind of thing that we do. When we put our stock into how we look, into how pretty we are, or the kind of um, hair that we have, and the kind of clothes that we wear, the kind of car we drive, how clean our house is, how big our house is, how perfect our children look, right? Um, how good our social media profile appears. When we put our stock in these things, um, it's like we're looking, we're seeking approval, we're seeking acceptance, we're seeking validation. Um, it's like we're seeking our self-worth and our worth in general from these things outside of ourselves. And we just, we just do this all the time. And we know, we know, right, that if you go out of your house and you look better than you did the the day before, it's not going to actually change your life. You know that if your house is a little bit of a mess when you have company come over, you could stress and freak out over that little bit of mess, but it's not going to actually change anything for you. But we're driven to do these things anyway. And those are like somewhat small, but somewhat big examples too. But for some of us, it's really a deep, deep, deep thing. Um, and where it really gets the deepest is when we seek our identity, where we seek our validation from the eyes of those around us, kind of like I do. But when you do it, uh, for a lot of us, with our parents. 
There are people who live their entire lives seeking the approval of the dad who never quite said, I love you, or the mom who never quite said, I am proud that you're my daughter, even though you're not perfect. I was talking to another friend this past week, and he was telling me he can look back on his life, uh, all the good things that happened, the decisions he made that were the right decisions, the decisions he made that were the wrong ones, the mistakes he made, his successes, his steps forward in his career, and he can look back at his life and pinpoint precisely how he was doing each and everything to find and to gain the approval of his dad. And he said to me, he said, the craziest thing happened, two crazy things. For one, I realized it was all a waste of time because my dad already approved of me. My dad already loved me. He didn't know how to communicate that, but he already loved me, and I didn't need to go crazy trying to gain his approval. The other thing he said was, once I realized that, once I found that validation, that blessing upon my life that I sought so hard after, my dad, once I found that, it didn't actually fill the hole inside of me. It didn't actually do what I was hoping. It didn't deliver like I thought it promised to deliver. And he said, I didn't quite fully understand the depths of that until I understood this, that as great as the approval is of your dad or of your mom, and it is great, it's, you should want your parents, if they're good parents, to bless your life, right? But until he understood this, that God is actually his father, God is the one uh, who's going to make or break his life, until he understood that, um, he just couldn't, he couldn't see it. But now he does. And the thing is, we all do. Because we know, we know that prestige and looking like a success and looking prettier and performing, getting the approval of our parents, we know in our heads that these things aren't going to actually be the things that deliver. They're not going to actually be the things that matter in the way that we do. Because we hope that they're going to deliver security and validation and the worth we want to ascribe. Um, in one sense, we hope that that, that that sort of approval from people is going to redeem what we've done with our lives and make us okay. And even though we know they won't deliver and can't deliver and don't deliver, we go about them as if they will deliver. And we're pulled, we're pulled towards them anyway. And even though we know that they are not true, they are not the truth, the way, and the life. Uh, we know this is true. And even though we know that God is our Father and that we are His children and that we could listen to His voice, we spend all of our time listening to their voice instead. And we spend all of our time seeking their approval instead and doing their will instead. And uh, what, what is this phenomenon? How do we explain? How do we explain this? Why do we do this? And more importantly, what's, what's the solution to it? Uh, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament, started a bunch of churches and wrote to them and encouraged them and taught them, he gives us in one of his letters a very clear but also very dramatic answer to this question because I think he sees this question as a really important one. It's a clear and dramatic answer, uh, and his solution to it is kind of an unexpected one. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. It comes in a letter that Paul wrote to uh, a church in Galatia. This was a region in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, this was the letter to the Galatians. This is a really uh, wonderful, but also a deep and a dense theological letter. It's, you know, it's very kind of subtle and nuanced. So what we're going to do this morning is literally like bounce off the surface of it. That's how, that, that's how shallow we will go into this. But um, we're going to pull out some of the big points of it. And I think I think it really speaks to our question for this morning. So this is where he starts. He starts by writing. This is in Galatians 4. 
He says, so with us, while we were minors. And when he says while we were minors, he doesn't mean while we were under 18. Um, what he means is before we came to know Jesus, before we followed Jesus, before we know who God was or what God does, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. Okay, so enslaved is a big dramatic term, right? You know what that means to be enslaved to someone, to be um, under someone's control, to have your emotions, your will, your decision really dictated by something else that's meant to keep you down. And this is a dramatic way of talking about it, but Paul wants to raise the, raise the stakes to what this is in our lives. He says we're enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. And this is a weird kind of um, phrase, and it's a little complicated. I'm going to give you what my interpretation of it is, uh, and then I'll kind of show you how we get there from the Galatian story. Um, when Paul says the elemental spirits of the world, what he means to say is the things that matter, the things that we thought once mattered, that no longer mattered because of Jesus. So I'll, I'll say that again. The things that used to matter, the things that used to have um, value to make us who we are, to determine things, to dictate things, to change things, the things that used to matter as an ultimate value that no longer matter because of what God has done for you and for me and for the world through Jesus Christ, okay? Things that used to matter but don't matter any longer because of Jesus. Um, and here's where this, here's where Paul gets to this at. The Galatian church was a church com composed of two kinds of Jesus followers, uh, Jewish converts to following Jesus and non-Jewish, Gentile converts. The Gentile converts, we'll start with them. Uh, before they were followers of Jesus, they, they kind of worshipped, they followed, they gave themselves to whatever the local gods were. The god of the moon, the sun, the stars, the sea, fertility, you know, God of the harvest, whatever the case may be. And in those days, the way that they kind of understood the world was that it was made of four central elements, um, earth, air, fire, and water. The gods were the spirits behind these elements that worked to control the world. So Paul is telling them, uh, you used to think that what those gods, what those elemental spirits did and said mattered, but those things no longer matter. And you know that because you know Jesus now, and I taught you all about that, and you know that now. Those things no longer matter. For the Jewish followers of Jesus, their story is very different. They didn't worship those kind of gods. They didn't worship anything like that. They worshiped the God of Israel, the God that Jesus worshiped, the God that we worship here this morning. What mattered for them was following God's law, as we can read about it in the Old Testament, all of the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. For them, the big deals were things like this. There was a calendar of the holy religious days, and in order to be good with God, you had to do this on that day and this on that day. In order for you to kind of be good with God, you couldn't eat certain foods, and you had to eat other certain foods. You couldn't... Um, you know, like you had to rest on the Sabbath. That was like their day off, that kind of big thing. The big thing in the Galatian community was this debate about circumcision. Um, men in that day needed to be circumcised in order to be considered part of God's kingdom. And these were the things that in the Jewish mindset, these were the things that mattered. And Paul says to them, once Jesus came, those things don't matter in the way that they used to matter. Only Jesus matters. His death, his resurrection, that's the thing that matters. The issue for the Galatian church was that they heard this, they believed this, Paul went away, and other teachers came into the community, 
and started telling them, yes, Jesus matters, but these other things matter too, like circumcision, like the calendar. Um, you got to do those kind of things. Uh, and some of the Galatians started to go back to their old way of thinking, back to the elemental spirits, back to um, the law, back to that sort of stuff. And Paul essentially writes Galatians to absolutely just cut that off and stop that and say, absolutely not. The only thing that matters is Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection. That's what matters. And uh, he uses the cut off language a bunch in reference to circumcision. And it's like a funny joke towards the end of the book, which you can read later. Um, but he says all this, uh, and then he kind of clarifies it for us a little bit later, and listen to what he says here. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, and that's the same thing as so with us while we were minors, you were enslaved to beings that by nature were not gods. This is an echo of that verse 3 we just read. Um, these beings that are not gods, here's the problem, Galatians, you have started to treat them as if they are gods. You have allowed them to have power over your life. What Paul does is Paul personifies these impersonal beings. Paul personifies these impersonal forces um, and tells them you're treating them like they're actually lowercase g gods. And I think this is actually a very helpful way for us um, to think about those things that kind of pull us away from uppercase G God. It's helpful for us to think about these things um, because when the things that pull us away from uppercase G God are just kind of vague or abstract things, they're hard to get our hands on. They're, 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 they're kind of hard to identify. But when we personalize them, when we um, kind of can understand them, they're a lot easier to face. So for instance, um, just being pulled to make my daughter go to three rather than 33. That's, that's the God of prestige that's talking to you. Or the thing that drives you to succeed and, and, and drives you crazy to succeed. That's the, that, that's the God of success. Or maybe you follow the God of, if I work really hard, I can make myself good enough. Or you follow the God of approval, or of, of validation, or of identity in the eyes of someone else. Um, Paul says to us, though, he says, now, however, listen to what he says. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? How can you turn back to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? I wonder if you can think of what the lowercase g gods are that speak loudly into your ears, into your heart. If you could think for a moment of those lowercase g gods and then contrast that with what you know of uppercase g God. Contrast that. His question to us is deep. It's personal. It cuts right through our hearts. Why would you go back to that slavery? How could you, how could you do that? Don't, don't you know who capital G God is? How could you go back like that? How could you want to be enslaved again? And obviously, this is kind of a rhetorical question that Paul is asking, because no one wants to go back into slavery, but we do. And why? Why do we find ourselves doing that? There's two simple and related reasons that I can see, and I think they'll make a lot of sense. One is that we're surrounded by the voices of these weak and beggarly gods day after day after day. 
Because day after day, we're hurt, we hear that for our life to be worth it, for, for our life to have significance, our daughter needs to go to three rather than 33. Day after day, we're used to thinking that um, it's all about how much money we have versus other people or all about how nice our house is versus other people, or how successful we appear versus other people, or how we look versus other people. And these are the voices that we hear uh, in media, in social media, from our friends, from our family, in work, day after day after day. It's no wonder we go back to these weak and beggarly spirits, because that's what we hear day after day. And the other reason we do this is for some of us, this is what we've heard all of our lives. From the time that we were as young as we were, for the last 30 years, you might have heard, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. You're not lovable. And along comes Jesus and says, you are good enough because I've made you good enough. And you are worthy. You know why? I gave my life for you. That's how much your life is worth. And you are lovable. I have already loved you in and out of the grave. But for 30 years, you're, you've heard and you've been shaped by these other voices, by these other lowercase g gods even if you hear Jesus say that to you, it's hard to flip that switch and all of a sudden believe it in a way that you live differently or have faith differently um, or feel differently. It's hard to do that. And so what happens is we retreat back into slavery because we know those gods. We're familiar with them. We've been around them all our lives and we hear them all our lives. And if we extend the image a little further, it's like we've become comfortable in trusting ourselves into the hands of these weak and beggarly gods even though we know they won't deliver what, what they promised to deliver. We put our faith in them, we put our hope in them, our trust in them, rather than in capital G God, who is actually our Father, and who actually loves us, and who we actually belong to. And it's ironic, it's ironic that, that Paul calls them weak and beggarly. Because for any of you who have a hard time believing that God actually loves you, and that God actually thinks you're worth it, and that God actually um, wants you as his son or his daughter, those gods don't feel weak and beggarly. They feel strong, and they feel powerful. The fact is, those gods are strong, and they are powerful, but they're only strong and powerful to enslave us, and they only have the strength and the power that we give them. They are weak, and they are beggarly, and they are absolutely impotent to do the thing that we actually want them to do, which is to redeem us, which is to validate our lives, which is to make us who we are. They can never do that, and we are tricked if we think that they can. And so this is the situation that we live in. What's the solution, the intervention? And Paul, Paul gives it to us. God gives it to us in the verses that we skipped up there. And here it is. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. That points at the solution. Redeem is slave language, if you don't know that. You redeem a slave out of slavery and you free them. Um, this is what God has done for us. God looks at us in the things that we're enslaved to, and he sent his son into the world to live and to suffer, to die, and to be raised for us, to free us from everything that keeps us captive, that keeps us bound. But listen, God is so gracious that he doesn't 
free us, in order to have us go walk into a new slavery or walk into a different God, God frees us in order to welcome us into his family, in order to adopt us as his son, as his daughter. And incidentally, do you know why God did this? Do you know why God does this? Did God need to do this? No. Did you do something to deserve this or to earn this? Absolutely not. Paul says in one of his other letters that each and every one of us, which means you, are destined for adoption as children according to the good pleasure of God's will. God is just pleased to adopt you. God is pleased to make you his son and his daughter. If you are someone who, doesn't, who, who can't believe that, who can't see that God would actually want you in his family, listen, hear that promise again. You are God's beloved. Having you in his family puts a smile on God's face. You. That is, that's really all we need here. That's really good news. What Paul is doing here with all of this, what Paul is doing is he's reminding these Galatians, and we need this reminder over and over again. Paul is reminding these Galatians, this is who you are. You are adopted children of God because of God's good pleasure. He is your father. That's who you are. That's who your identity is. You're not slaves any longer. You're children, and if children, you are heirs of God, which means you are set to inherit every good thing that God could possibly give someone. That's you. And so the solution to slavery, to these lowercase g gods, is found in our relationship with uppercase g God. It's found in our relationship with him. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If we're used to entrusting ourselves into the hands of these lowercase g gods and to hearing their voice and to being shaped by them, it's time to entrust yourself into the hands of uppercase g God, to hear his voice, to be shaped by him, because he is actually your God and Father and who actually um, can give you what you're looking for. Paul is saying to them, you need to know this. You need to remember this. You need to believe this. You need to live like it. And in order for us to know and believe and to live like it, what we need is a relationship with our God and our Father. And we need to cultivate that relationship and work on that relationship just like we work on any other relationship. We give it time. We give it energy. We give it attention. We give it sacrifice. And when we do, the promise is that uh, the effect of that relationship will counteract any, any of these lowercase g gods that are pulling on us, any of these gods that we're used to. And let me show you what I mean. If we're used to listening to the voices of those lowercase g gods, the call for you is to listen to uppercase g god. When, when something happens, when a challenge hits you, when some bad news comes at you, um, when a struggle arises, whose voice is it that you hear? Do you hear the voice of God, your father, saying to you, it's okay. It's scary, but it's okay because I am with you. I've got this. Do you hear that voice? Or do you hear the voice of the lowercase g God who has spoken to you for the last 30 years and said, you're not going to make it. You're not good enough to face this. You're not worth it. What we need to do is we need to train, retrain our minds, our ears, our hearts to hear the voice of our God and father who actually loves us. It's one of the reasons why we care so much about reading Scripture together. Because it's in Scripture that we hear the voice of God, that we hear the promises of God that make our lives different. It's in Scripture we meet uh, God's voice become flesh in Jesus. So 
Um, If you're someone who doesn't read scripture and doesn't develop your relationship with God, your father, based on that, like now's the time to do it. We've been doing the year of the Bible thing. Get one of those cards off the welcome desk. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you. If you don't have a Bible, you have a phone and there's like a thousand Bibles on the phone. Um, You can go to our website and scroll down and look at the year of the Bible stuff and you'll just get the reading for the day. Um, Do that. There's great blogs on there to help you understand how to read it. because we believe that that's where you're gonna hear God's voice the most. And if you're not in a community group, as Tom talked about, now's the time to get into one because we're putting kind of things in place to make it so that together we can hear God's voice better and we can read scripture better and we can work on that together. Because if we wanna um, uh, throw away those lowercase g gods, we need to retrain our minds and our brains and our hearts to hear God's voice speaking to us rather than those weak and beggarly gods. And so that's one thing. But we don't just listen. We also have to seek God. Look, we're used to seeking the approval, the validation, the blessing of those lowercase g gods. We're used to seeking them out to redeem us, to give our lives meaning, to make us who we are. We've done that all of our lives. It's no wonder. Rather than that, this is the time to learn how to seek out God for what God can give you. And the challenge to you, the way to do that that I'll offer this morning, is just to learn how to pray. To learn how to seek God in prayer. Because look, you know about the hole in your heart. You know what it is. You know the emptiness you're trying to fill. You know what you're looking for in the world. Rather than looking to the lowercase g gods, take take a chance and seek it out from uppercase g god. Seek it out from God. Uh, Go to the source to get that. And God will deliver because God is a God of deliverance uh, in multiple ways. Um, I'll tell you, for me, the thing, uh, one of the experiences that taught me more about how to seek out God in prayer than anything else I've experienced in my life was doing Rooted this past winter. Um, Every day you were writing prayers to God. This was something that transformed me, and I think you saw it in some of the videos. Prayer, seeking God out in prayer, is something that is absolutely transformational for who we are and for how we believe and for how we have faith and for how we do things in the world. Um, It's too late for today, but go to Rooted next week and get in that and learn how to seek out God in prayer. It is life-changing stuff. And the last thing that we do is we just do. We do God's will. Now, I promised I would never become a preacher guy who used stupid acronyms to help people remember. Um, (laughs) It just, just kind of worked out that way. Um, I'm not telling you to do LSD. Uh, I'm telling you to, yeah. So last week, last week we talked about we end up just doing who we are, right? We end up doing who we are. Um, that's what we end up doing. And so listen, when we entrust ourselves to the gods of, su- of success, what we do is we drive ourselves to success. We compromise all over the place. When we give ourselves to the gods of prestige, what we do is we want our daughter to go to three rather than 33, even though we know it's not better for her. Instead, stop that. Just do who you are. As God's children, do what God would have you do. Love the way God loves. Be merciful the way God's merciful. Care the way God cares. Be true the way God is true. Practice patience. Practice generosity. Practice faithfulness. Practice self-control. Practice humility and kindness as God is with us. Because when it comes down to it, we do who we entrust ourselves to. So practice entrusting yourself to God by doing the sort of things that God has made you to do anyway. 
What we're talking about in all of these things um, is cultivating your relationship with God, your Father. It's learning to entrust yourself into his hands rather than into the hands of those other lowercase g gods. And for, for all of us, this is a process that takes our entire lives. It just does. It's, it's, it's never a final product. But for some of us, it could be hard because for 30 years you've heard one thing. And now you've heard about Jesus. You're not going to flip that switch overnight. It's a process to get there. Um, and God will see you through it. For some of us, we hear the voices all the time of society, of the world, of those lowercase g gods telling us what we need to do and who we need to be and what we need to shoot for. And it's hard to not hear those voices. But as you develop your relationship with God, those voices will fade into the background in favor of God's voice. And it takes time. And here's what's so great about this. And we skip this verse completely pretty much. As, as we do this, as we cultivate that relationship, you believe in and trust yourself into God's hands. God sends his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts. And he cries out to God for us. And when the spirit gets in us, it actually changes us. It actually transforms us so that we face everything we face differently because of what the spirit is doing inside of us. It changes our hearts changes our minds, our ears, and our eyes, our mouths, our hands, and our feet, so that we can become and be and live like the children of God, who God means for us to be, just naturally. We just do who we are, because the Spirit is working inside of us to do that. So that when the college application day comes, you know exactly how to guide your daughter. You hear the voice of the God of prestige, but you say, that's not who I am. I'm a, I'm a son of God. Uh, this is what I'm doing. I'm in God's hands instead. And when you and when you hear the voice of the, I need that hole in my heart filled, God, you know exactly how to get it filled because there's a good chance God is already filling it. And when you're up against the things that make you afraid, the things that make you feel insecure, the things that you wish weren't there, the, the emptiness you feel, the challenges that you face that, you, that feel too big for you, when the Spirit of God is working in you, you are able to face those things and to rest easily and say, it's okay because God is with me, because God is my Father, and I am His son. I am His daughter. And the Spirit says that inside of us so that we believe it and we face, we face life differently because of it. And everything that we're looking for, everything that we're seeking to fill the hole in our heart, everything that we haven't found yet, we will find and you will find that it already belongs to you because the Spirit of God is in you. And you are not only a child, but you are an heir of everything that God can give you. When you're in your relationship with your Father in the way that you're meant to, this is what the Spirit does in us. This is what the Spirit opens us up for. This is how the Spirit changes us so that all we have to do is just do who we are as God's children. So I'm going to invite the musicians up to come and lead us in our next song. Um, and we are going to simply uh, close this in prayer. But then the next song that we're going to sing is really a prayer for God to start this in you. Um, it's a song where we're going to uh, ask, ask God's spirit to come in in a way that changes us, that frees us, uh, that brings light into our life, and that um, makes, us, makes us know and believe from the bottom of our hearts that we are actually God's children. So let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, sending your son into this world to live and to die and to be raised for us, to free us from everything that enslaves us. We pray, God, that you would send that message into our hearts, that your spirit 
would fill us so that we actually believe that and so that we can live like it and so that we can trust you like it so that when challenges hit us or when um, uncertainties come at us or when our fears are too much for us or when our hopes aren't met, we, we can trust in you and believe in you and have faith in you because we know that we're in your hands and we belong to you anyway. We thank you that you have adopted us as your children and that you have become our father in a way that changes everything for us. We pray, Lord, now that you would speak that into our hearts. For those of us whose, whose hearts are too kind of walled up, whose, whose hearts are too cold or that's never broken into, God, I pray that you would break that into our hearts now so that we're changed from the inside out by the power of your spirit. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.